Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's happening, everyone? Good evening. It is Jay Scott, and it Baby, is the, Rock, you got the just Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Thanks again for stopping by and taking the time out of your day to give us a listen. We do appreciate it, and we also appreciate if you write us a review at the end of the episode. Tell us what you think. And also remember, we are part of the Pantheon Podcast platform, the official podcast platform for Metallica and their podcast. So check that out, as well as all the other music-related podcasts on PantheonPodcast.com, and you can search them up on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pantheon Pods, and you can do the same with The Hook Rocks on all three of those platforms. Just search up The Hook Rocks, and don't forget to set your app that you do podcasts with to automatic downloads so you get the latest episodes right to your phone. 
and or right to your device, whatever, wherever you listen. And also enjoy the previous episodes that we've done. We've had some amazing, amazing shows over the past several months. Recently, we welcomed Don Dockin talking the new album and also a lot of information. We got a Dockin movie coming out on Netflix. We got all this stuff happening. So that was really exciting to talk with him. We've had some great new music spotlights with Emily Wolf, Parker Barrow, The Dust Coda, John Drake, great, great UK band that is just absolutely amazing. Also, check out the episode with Aaron Jones, released earlier in October, and the Tracy Guns episode, talking about Eddie Van Halen on the anniversary of his passing, which is just an amazing episode. Tracy was so great with his time and his perspective on their friendship and what he thought about Eddie and how it impacted him or how he impacted Tracy um, during the interview. So please check out, out those and more. And... I'm really excited about this show today, as I am with all my episodes, but this one really is uh, a show that I've wanted to do for a while. As you guys know, I am a huge blues fan. Growing up in Chicago, uh, I was hearing blues in the womb. The movie The Blues Brothers that I saw at a very young age really impacted me. And just knowing all these greats that uh, were the original gangsters of blues guys like John Lee Hooker and Muddy Waters, and Magic Sam, and Otis Rush. The list just goes on. And there's one guitarist in particular that just has always struck a chord, no pun intended, with me, and that is Buddy Guy. And my next guest had the pleasure of sitting down with him last month, I believe, and talked with him about his career and his legacy. As you may know or may not know, Buddy is on his final tour where he is going all over from Africa to, to Europe in the States. I think he's still going to be doing his residency shows at his club legends in Chicago, which if you ever have a chance to visit the city, try to line that up with a buddy guy show. You will be absolutely amazed. The guest is Andrew Daly, the writer for guitar world and other magazines too, as well. What's happening, man. How are you? What's happening? Jay. How you doing? Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate the time and, uh, you know, the up, the, the, the conversation we're going to have. I just read the George Lynch article this morning, um, that you recently did. I'm a huge George Lynch fan, as many of you know. And I always enjoy talking with George because if you can get underneath the surface with him, there's a lot that he gives you. There's a lot. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I've interviewed George maybe five or six times, and um, I love George. I love George as a player. I love George as a person. But I will say there's like three or four different versions you might get. And to your point, um, you know, you might get Goofy George. You might get Serious George. You might get Gearhead George. You might get Evasive George. And uh, that particular interview, he was Evasive George. But that's no reason. I think that's just his personality. It's it's day by day. Um, he's very cryptic sometimes, but I, I like that about him. <laughs> yeah, and he's when he does open up, he's got some. He's got a great perspective on things. I I did an episode with him about his documentary Shadow Nation about two years ago. I think it was a year and a half, two years ago, and got really in depth about what motivated him to do that and how we did it, and we barely talked about guitar during the whole episode. And I know some people were a little disappointed with that, but I just thought that was a whole side of him that we had not seen and talked about with him. And, and I was just so grateful for that time. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, the first time I interviewed George Lynch, um, it was probably no, three or four years ago, he ended the interview saying that he uh, he gets more satisfaction at a growing corn and uh, he could see himself just becoming a corn farmer. And uh, the next time I interviewed him, he said that, uh, you know, he could not see himself living without music and he'll never stop. And then um, this most recent one now uh, we're ending lynch mob, apparently. But who knows? I mean, with George, everything and anything is subject to change. You have to take it with a grain of salt, but in the best way possible. But I think that's, I think that's what we love about George Lynch. You just, you literally never know what you're going to get. <laughs> yeah. And there's such a cool evolution of him too, from his younger days to now, you know, like now he's kind of like that Obi-Wan, you know, that powerful Jedi that was there in the fray of things and in, in the, in the peak of eighties rock and, the late seventies with Eddie and Randy and all those guys, Greg Leon and Stephen Lynch and 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 you know we all know the history with that, and it's just like now he's um, he's just a wise man, you know he's just been through it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, <clears throat> his new album with Lynch Mob, it's cool, man. It's a Lynch Mob record. Um, we'll see what happens with it, George. I, I could see him literally riding off into the sunset in like a Winnebago somewhere. Living on the side of a mountain, or I could see him coming out and making another Lynch Mob record. You just you never know. But he's definitely a, a wise sage of guitar, all things guitar, not just playing, but guitar building, live performance, uh, and everything in between. He's a blast. Well, we always begin every episode every time we have a first time guest the same way, and that's really about. The show and what the essence of it is. And just like every great rock song has a hook that pulls you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, a band, an album, or performance that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you? It's two different things. Um, I can't mention one, but not the other. Um, I grew up with Elvis Presley. You know, uh, I grew up, I'm be 36 in February. And, uh, you know, so music I listened to as a kid in the nineties was different than a lot of my peers. When my peers were listening to Hanson and Spice Girls and Backstreet Boys, I wasn't just listening to Elvis Presley. I was listening to Elvis Presley on cassette. Um, so there was a, a tape called the rocker, which is like a compilation of some of his, you know, mid late fifties stuff uh, into maybe very early sixties. And uh, it's, quintessential Elvis. He's wearing a leather jacket and he's leaning on a motorcycle. I think the compilation came out in the mid-80s, which is probably when my dad bought it. And uh, it was just always around in the car, in the house. And that really shaped my love for rock music, I guess in its purest, earliest form. And then then once that happened, um, you know, my dad recognized that and started buying me CDs and things. But then again, what really kicked it off where this music was going to be rock music was going to be not just something that I love, but it was going to define my life was another cassette. And it was kiss love gun. Uh, I found it in a draw downstairs and went upstairs and I put love gun on and I still remember this day, Love Gun shocked me tomorrow and tonight. Uh, from there on out, completely addicted to, you know, rock music. And, of course, anybody that knows me, I'm Kiss fanatic. Uh, those two things. So I guess you could say cassettes <laughs> in the time when I 
a kid who was growing up in the 90s should not have been listening to cassettes, let alone Elvis Presley and Kiss. Yeah, that's two different ends of the spectrum in one <laughs> way, but in another way, they're kind of connected too, you know, with the performances and, you know, the over the top, uh, you know, whatever, you know, Elvis was obviously from, from the waist up for a long time on TV because the controversy, Kiss had the controversy. People thought they were satanic worshipers. So there's a lot of, <laughs> I know Gene talks about the Beatles being a big, huge, uh, influence on him, but, you know, for anyone growing up during that time, Elvis had to be there too as well. Oh yeah. And the Love Gun <clears throat> tape for, uh, album for those that don't remember it ends with a, a cover of uh then she kissed me of course that's the cover of then he kissed me from the the, the 60s uh so it's sort of like that's like a tie in a thread there uh that old school rock song being covered which sort of harkens back to my my early rock days that i was into with elvis and such wasn't that the was it that one of the rumored songs that eddie played on or was that I know. I, th- I thought one of them was calling Doctor Love. Song that Eddie. Well, the story of that is Christine sixteen, and okay. um, yeah. because Eddie Van Halen was formally uh, discovered by Gene Simmons, as I say, uh, he's the one that I believe was behind their demo and everything. And um, when he wrote Christine sixteen, the rumor is that Alex and Eddie played on the demo, and um, that supposedly Eddie wrote that solo which has been disputed. You know, it's one of those things. Ace freely says, no, I wrote that solo. Yes. Eddie was on it, but and Ace confirms that uh, Eddie was around and stuff. He told me he walked into a rehearsal one day and he saw Eddie Van Halen and uh, Alex Van Halen there. And he was like, who the hell are these people? And uh, if you believe Ace freely, he's the one that spurred on Gene to not manage them <laughs> and all these things like that. So, yeah, that's that's uh, that's the Van Halen connection. That was Christine Sixteen is the one that was rumored. Whether that's true or not, who knows? You'll never know. <laughs> it's hard to say. Eddie Van Halen, I don't think ever confirmed it. When did guitar become a passion for you? Um, guitar, you know, I, I as a kid always worshipped guitar players. Um, I'm not alone in that. Uh, you know, when I watched rock bands. I was never, I recognized that people like Robert Plant and Roger Daltrey and Freddie Mercury and Paul Stanley, the singers in the bands were amazing, but I was always drawn to that guitar player sort of hanging out on the side, doing his thing. Um, you know, when I was growing up, probably like a lot of kids, I idolized my dad, but beyond my dad, I, I idolized people like Ace Frehley and Jimmy Page. Uh, you know, I plastered my walls with them these people that played Les Pauls and my first guitar was a, uh, an Epiphone Les Paul. I think it's like an Epiphone Les Paul special. It came in that little box with the little miniature Epiphone amp. It was like a five watt amp, you know, that the whole thing. And um, I would just sit in my room for hours and try and fail to play <laughs> Led Zeppelin and kiss. And um, I was obsessed with it. You know what I mean? And interestingly enough though, as obsessed as I was with the guitar, I was also obsessed with the drums and for a long time I, I just, I played drums and I didn't touch the guitar for years, but even when I was just playing drums, I was still always obsessed with guitar players. You know, that's always been the thing, whether I was playing guitar or not, it's, it started from that young age from 
watching Ace Freely and Jimmy Page and then debating with my dad of my eight-year-old self of who was better, Eddie Van Halen or Jimmy Page, you know, the age-old debate of who's better than who. That's really when it started. It's probably seven or eight years old. Where did it go from there? I mean, you ended up writing for one of the biggest guitar magazines ever, Guitar World. How did that <laughs> half happen? I don't know. It's, it's a funny thing, right? Um, it wasn't planned. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I'm just old enough to have lived through an era where print was still king before the internet and digital was something that we, you know, we would consume media through. When I was growing up, if you wanted to find out what was going on, as far as music and stuff like that is concerned, you know, because MTV by that point was not what it was, you had to go and, and read. Um, I would go to the newsstand and I would buy Guitar World regularly. I always, as a kid, you know, I loved the interviews. I read all of them, you know, cover to cover. Um, the way that I write to this day is influenced by that, that snarky, make sure you have a personality uh, approach that Brad Talinsky brought to Guitar World in the 90s. Um, but it wasn't something that was on my radar to become a writer or a journalist because I always knew that I could write. It was always, you know, above grade level and, you know, all that stuff as far as writing in English was concerned. But it was never on my radar. I was pretty directionalist, to be honest, as a as a kid and into my teenager. Uh, and I went to college and I dropped out of college. But I, I was going to college to be a teacher, a history teacher, mind you. And I dropped out. And people always would encourage me to write, but it's like, you know, when you're a dropout and you don't have any direction or any focus, what are you going to do with that? Um, But at some point I decided to uh, start writing and uh, to make a a longer story short, I ended up writing for a website called Vinyl Junkies and um, was the editor of that whole shebang before I launched my own website, which was called vinyl rider music and um just through doing good work and making connections that grew to something that was bringing in a a lot of visitors something like a million and a half a year or so for a couple of years and eventually from that i made enough of a name for myself to um branch out and start to write for outlets like guitar world and rock candy and metal edge and things like that but it wasn't planned. It, it was something that happened very uh, meteorically over time through a lot of hard work. It's it's not the kind of thing that you could sort of just flick a switch and make happen. And it's, um, you know, when I think about it, whenever I get jaded because it's a tough business, it's a tough gig, I always take a step back and I say, how, you know, how thankful I am to be considered good enough to write for a publication like guitar world, because I recognize that not everybody gets to. Yeah. It, it, it was always, like you said, I, I still remember the magazine stands at tower records and any, most record stores had guitar world, but I was always, I always remember like taking the latest copy out, sitting down in front of the rest of the magazines and just sitting on the floor, reading an article or whatever. And, 
if I couldn't get uh, the one I wanted to read or something like that, I I'd obviously buy it with my paper route money. But it's always been, you know, it had an impact on music, especially rock music. And even though today there may not be the guitar heroes that we think of back in the day, they still shine a spotlight on, you know, the people that you should know. And I always, that's why I always liked about that magazine. And like what you do is you kind of shine a light on a lot of different things that I've never played guitar, but I'm a guitar nerd. I always enjoy, you know, I mean, we always look at the instrument of guitar the same way. It looks the same to everyone that sees it. But what's always amazing and fascinating about it is every player sounds different on the same guitar. And that's always been for me um, why I love just hearing the differences in tone, the approach, the attack, the phrasing, because that's really where the true artist is, you know, when they pick up a guitar. Well, that's a, that's a good point. And uh, to dissect a little bit what you said, um, everything you mentioned is uh, guitar gods and things like guitar heroes and how it's changed. And I think, I think that there are still a lot of guitar heroes today. It's different. You have to remember <clears throat> that the way that we look at a guitar hero from the seventies, like a Jimmy Page or uh, an Ace Fraley or Brian May is different because those guys and uh, you know, they're, they're sort of like the architect archetype, you know what I mean? Like a Joe Perry or you think of a lead guitar player. These are the people that come to mind and they're, they're transcendent, uh, but they've been around for a while. And then the eighties, you have the, the George Lynch's and the Steve Vai's and the Tracy Guns and all these players and Slash, of course. And they're guitar gods in their own right. And then you look at the 90s. You have Mike McCready, Tom Morello. I could go on. But if you, in the 90s, you know, when we were talking about Mike McCready or Tom Morello at the time, people probably weren't looking at them in the same way that they look at them now with hindsight. And so that's, I always see these things where people will say, you know, the guitar hero is dead. The guitar God is dead. And I'm like, no, you have to remember that you don't become a, a guitar hero or a guitar, a guitar God overnight. It takes time. You have to earn that. And there's a lot of players out there right now that I will guarantee you in 15, 20 years, we're going to look, we're going to look at them and say, that's the Steve Vai. You know, look at a Tim Henson from Polyphia. Um, Nita Strauss, she's doing it. She's becoming a guitar hero. You know, she's she's there. Sophie Lloyd, um, look at what she's done in the last year. It's incredible. She went from a YouTube guitar player, a TikTok guitar player, to being on the cover of Guitar World. So that's just a few. So the guitar hero is still very much alive. And to your point, the reason that just like you, uh, guitar fascinates me, and I love covering guitar players above all else because of the idiosyncrasy in each player there is. Like, just for example, just before I got on with you, I was on with uh, Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker from Sleater Kinney. And before that, I was on with Ian Thornley with Big Wreck. And, love you, love Ian. and you look, you know, those two conversations were amazing because how different are those three players right there even corin and carrie are in the same band but the differentiation between them as players is what makes that band special and then ian thornley 
another guy who's he can shred with the best of them, but the soundscapes that he creates are incredible. So that's what it is. It's in my opinion, a guitar more than any other instrument adds so much multi-dimension to songs that it just makes it fascinating to cover. So I, I agree with your point that you made before about that. Ian Thornley's tone will knock you on your ass. I mean, oh, yeah. that is, I don't know where that comes from, but it is amazing. I had the pleasure of seeing them live before the pandemic happened in Chicago. And none of my friends wanted to go. Who the hell is Big Wreck? I'm like, this band is amazing. Amazing guitar player, amazing singer. So I went by myself to the show. And when he came on, it was just so powerful. It was it was soulful at the same time. It was melodic. And then he's got an amazing voice. He, he reminds me a lot of, like, Kotzen. Kotzen's more of a shredder, right? Uh, but yep. But Cotton also has some depth too with like R and B and that's kind of where the connection with Ian, because Ian's got a little bit of that as well. But their voices are very similar and they just are magic when they're playing. Just unbelievable. Oh yeah. I mean uh Richie Cotton, amazing player. Um I think he's a guy that he as much recognition as he gets, he deserves more. And Ian to your point, his tone is incredible. And the coolest thing about Ian that I think a lot of people don't realize is I think he's he's considered, you know, he's like a guitar player's player. He's the guy that if you play a guitar and you read guitar magazines or whatever, you know about him. But the average person probably doesn't. But I think most people know that he's kind of a guitar nerd in a certain way, but he's not he's a lot he's a lot simpler as far as his setup and stuff than you would think, you know. Uh he's refreshing in that he can create incredible sounds and and uh bring that great tone out and it's really just mostly a tube screamer and an you know and a mxr nine you know phase 90 he keeps it super simple you know what i mean he doesn't get hung up in trends and pedal fomo and all this stuff like that he he knows what works and he does a lot of different things with pedals that a lot of people forsake and take for basic and i, I like that about him he's he's a great player you know what I mean? I, I could talk about him all day. He's amazing. And then other new guitar players, too. Scott Holiday, Rival Sons, is very experimental. He's got a very unique tone to him. Tyler Baker from Goodbye June is another amazing guitar player. Tyler Bryant as well. Yeah, there's some some great John Notto can just, I mean, can write a riff like nobody's business. I mean, those four guys, you know, the, the way they play are just absolutely amazing. Absolutely, oh, I love John Notto. He's another one of my uh, one of my favorite newer guitar players. I like him. Uh, he's got that thing, you know. He's got that that quintessential guitar player thing. He, you know, he's got all the moves. He's got the tone. He's got the right gear, uh, and he he makes the most of it. And uh, he does something that a lot of people take for granted is that you know he carries the guitar in that band. He's the guitar player. Um, it's a lot harder than people think to be, especially these days, um, to carry the, the guitar load by yourself without a rhythm player. And he does so pretty seamlessly. And he's a young guy, and um, it's very impressive. Buddy Guy, uh, the interview that you did with him came out last month, I believe, or maybe earlier this month. And I had the pleasure of seeing him in the winter, December or January. I took my nephew 
who had just turned 21 to see him. And he's more of a, you know, metal guy. He's in a like altar bridge and shine down and all that kind of stuff. And I go, I'm taking you to see buddy guy. He's like, why? I'm like, cause you need to, you need to see him. And we went there and I hadn't been to legends in probably 20 plus years. You know, this is all remodeled down. So I started taking my nephew around because it's almost like a museum in a way too, as well. It's got guitars hanging up. I mean, there's this, thing above the bar where it's got Jeff Beck's guitar next to Stevie Ray Vaughn's. And it's just a very heavy thing to look at knowing those two guys are no longer with us. But when you go towards the back and you see the pictures of all the blues guys, and as I'm telling my nephew, I'm like, buddy's the last of these, of these performers. That's it. Like he's, he's the last one. And when you hear him get on stage and he sounds absolutely amazing and he tells the story of growing up in Louisiana and all that he went through and his perspective on things. When I was interviewing Chris Voss of the record company, we were talking about music history. And I said, someone has to sit in a room with him with just a spotlight on him, you know, like, like, a, like almost like an interrogation and just have him tell stories about his career. Because I just think it'd be fascinating because He's seen so much, he's experienced so much, and not just music, but in life, that, you know, people call individuals an institution. He is the definition of that. What was it like for you to interview him? Was this the first time you had spoken to him? Yeah, this was the the first time I'd interviewed Buddy Guy. Um, He was great. Uh, You know, he, it it came across in the interview, I, I think, it's, he made a point to say, you know, that he's still humble and, you know, he asks people to call him buddy. You don't call me Mr. Guy and all those things. Um, he was, I think, as you would expect, he was very soft-spoken, very humble, and just a joy to speak with. You know, I mean, if you've seen him perform live, there's so much, like, effervescence that comes off of him. You know, he's almost 90 years old, but the joy that he has to be up on stage and playing guitar, it, it, it's still there and it's incredible. You know, he hasn't let being in the music industry make him jaded. He, he's not affected at least outwardly by the fact that he was basically ignored until he was like 50 years old, which is crazy. Um, he's such a kind person so thankful for everything that he has. And it comes across when you talk to him, you know, um, just full of life and full of stories, but soft-spoken and just very kind. I got that too from him. You know, he tells these stories in between songs and, you know, from the interview that I, I read with, you know, that you did one of the biggest impacts was a lot that impacted me in that interview. But one of the things that I took from it was, he made the statement, when I had to learn, I went and learned. When I went, when I had to play, I went and played. And I stood in the corner until I was called on to play. He wasn't a gregarious guy. You know, like you said, he was humble. And the impact he had on music, but and being very reluctant to be an impact in music is, is one of the biggest things I took from that conversation. Yeah. He was uh, that. I think I know the the segment that you're talking about, where he 
because this is, I mean, this is a guy that really, if you know anything about him, he was actually on a lot of records. He wasn't even allowed to use his real name. He, they, they called him friendly chap instead of buddy guy. If you can't see the, (laughs) uh, but that wasn't, he, he didn't seem terribly upset about that. I think he understood that, Hey, I'm playing alongside a lot of these great blues guys. Um, and I have to pay my dues. I I have to earn it. But I, I, one of the, it's one of the funniest things I've ever, uh, you know, I've been witness to in an interview when he told this story of, how um, these guys would call him motherfucker in the studio. And he's like, you know, he's like, you know, I would go in the corner and I would learn. And then they would say, come here, motherfucker, fix this motherfucker. Come on over here, motherfucker. And at the end he joked, he said, you know, I thought my name was buddy guy. And I just thought that was so funny. So he, I'm sure that he, he, that kind of goes to show you that I'm sure he didn't like being called motherfucker, but, uh, he respected these guys enough to, to know what he perceived as his place and to, as he put it, go in the corner and wait to be called upon. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that. You some motherfucker in that interview. I was like, this is fantastic. <laughs> but again, it, it, it spoke to the, you know, how humble he was and how. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S.
he I, I don't because he grew up in poverty in Louisiana. And I think as the story goes, he didn't have running water till he was 16. Yep. And he was a survivor, basically, you know, in, in a time where, you know, living in the South and being black was was you had to survive. And coming up to Chicago and and becoming what he was, I don't I got this from the interview and I've seen him perform and tell the stories. I, I don't think he ever lost where he came from. And, and, you know, a lot of people when they, as they get older, they lose some of those files in their memory bank, you know, and he's always been in tune with that. And I think he's always been, no, he, he knows what the other side really looks like. And I just think he's thankful at the end of the day for the opportunity. I mean, when the Stones used to come to Chicago, he was always invited to play up, play on stage with them. Clapton, and I, it was either Clapton or Page who called him the greatest guitar player ever. I think it was Page. And I forgot about this, and in the, in the interview made mention of this. In the 80s, he kind of disappeared. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, you know, that's right. I didn't, you know, obviously I was in tune with what was going on with MTV and all those bands. So my, my uh, buddy guy was not on my radar, you know, at, at that point, but reflecting on that, I was like, yeah, he didn't really do much. And then he came out with that album. He was 55. And it just seems like we all wanted him. We all want him to be more and known more than what he is, but he's okay with it. He's okay with his place in music history. I think so. You know, it's a funny thing. I mean, you have to remember one of the things that he told me and it's in the interview somewhere in there is that um, at one point he was, he was called down to his record label. And this is after years of being refused to release his own album. This is after years of being told to, you know, to tone it down, to stop being so flamboyant, to stop being so aggressive on stage. And this is after years of being referred to as friendly chap in the credits his record label called him in and, and he thought he was in trouble. And instead they said, buddy, we want you to, to kick me in the ass. And he said, why? And it's because you're listening to Jimi Hendrix. You're listening to Eric Clapton. They're playing like you. And that's the funny thing about him is you have to know, you have to understand is that a lot of people, there's a certain sound of guitar that came out of the late sixties uh, there's the Hendrix sound and then there's the Clapton sound. Uh, the Clapton sound specifically is the one that we hear on that Blues Breakers record. That's, that's the, that's the sound. And then there's, of course, there's Hendrix. These guys, you know, they were borrowing from Buddy Guy. I mean, Buddy Guy, he was blending what would become known as sort of hard rock influences with blues and, doing so very aggressively with a lot of gain, uh, doing things with, you know, a Fender Tweed amp and a Stratocaster that nobody else was doing. When all the other guys like him were playing semi-hollow body guitars, Buddy Guy had a Stratocaster, you know. So when we talk about the the guitar sound of the late 60s and the guy, the guys, the players that defined it, you can't not talk about Buddy Guy, but not enough people do. And it's incredible, you know, people that know guitar know that. But to your point, a lot of people don't. And we we want that to be the case. We want people to know that. We want people to understand that. 
but it's probably better to just take the cue from Buddy that it's okay. You know, it's not everybody's place in history to be credited with starting a movement. Um, But if you're willing or you're interested, the research is there and the evidence is there to understand where the roots of the movement come from. And as far as late 60s heavy guitar on the blues and what would become known as the rock spectrum, a buddy guy is paramount to that. And, um, that, you know, that only got bigger and bigger throughout the seventies. And I'm not surprised that he was buried in the eighties because the sound of what would became popular in the eighties, as far as guitar, wasn't that there was no real place for him. Um, which said there was no real place for him until Stevie Ray Vaughan came along. And, um, Stevie Ray Vaughan, who again, rooted in what Buddy Guy created, he gave Buddy Guy residence again. If it wasn't for a guy like Stevie Ray Vaughan, I have to believe that I don't know that Buddy Guy ever would have been given the shot to to do what he did in the early 90s of 55, which is, it's crazy to think about how that is, that, but it's almost like a nice give and take because Buddy Guy sort of, helped create that sound and which led to Stevie Ray Vaughan. And then Stevie Ray Vaughan kind of paid him back in that way. That's the way I look at it. Do you think a lot of it has to do as well with his, with tempering his flamboyancy as they wanted to, you know, for him to do in the sixties, you know, to tone it down on stage and all that. Maybe if he would have been more like, I'm trying to think of an example, you know, more of a, uh, of a showman, which he is. I think that's something that people don't understand, you know, the way he presents the guitar and the way he talks in between his songs. He is, you know, um, an entertainer. But coming, you mentioned the 80s, you know, where people were jumping up on stage in the 70s. You got Paige, you know, strutting on stage and Clapton doing his thing. Do you think if he had a little bit more of that, people would have been more in tune with him? No, I don't think so. You know, when Body Guy was young, in the 50s and the 60s, he was flamboyant on stage to the point that he was reprimanded by his record label over and over again. It's just that that music wasn't mainstream then. And then when those sorts of sounds became mainstream, unfortunately, a lot of the a lot of the um, the black players, they had to go over to Europe and the audience wasn't here. And ultimately what happened was, is, is a, you know, it's a tale as old as time. The white players are the guys that got all the credit. The Claptons, the, the, the Jimmy Pages, the, those are all the guys that got a lot of credit. And Hendrix helped change that a little bit. But a lot of people forgot where a lot of that came from. But Buddy Guy, and then by that point, in the late 60s, when he's making his own albums, he's performing, you know, he was always a flamboyant performer and always was. It's just that the reality is, is that his style influenced what all those guys did. Of course, they ultimately spun it in a way which was more mainstream and more digestible for for radio and for people that bought records and things like that. Blues music, that's what he's always been. He's a blues player. And his music, not until Stevie Ray Vaughan came along and, and sort of took that modern blues and made it something that was consumable. Um, that's really what it was. It's just, 
it's a combination of of timing with him. Um, he never made pop music, and his type of blues, which is you know sort of modern blues, sort of speak, it wasn't popular really until Stevie Ray Vaughan sort of gave it residence. I mean, you can even extend that even further. I mean, even even Clapton shifted his sound in the in the '80s down to the way that the guy dressed after Stevie Ray Vaughan came about. Clapton changed his whole sound and vibe when Stevie Ray came along, and then it's no surprise that a guy like Buddy could have a renaissance. And a lot of the, I mean, even BB King had a renaissance in the '90s. A lot of those guys did. It was it all originated from from Stevie Ray. It's just a it's timing, really, as far as Buddy's concerned. Do you think we'll see another player like Stevie Ray bring blues to the forefront again? You know, I don't, I don't think blues needs to be brought to the forefront again, but we have Joe Bonamassa. People will hate on him all they want. That guy, he, he is that guy, I suppose. You know what I mean? He's, he's amazing. Um, but when you, when you look, think about it, since then, I don't think another player needs to resurrect the blues because the blues is never, it's never going to be the genre that's at the top of the charts. It's never going to be the MTV favorite. It's never going to be, unless maybe you are Joe Bonamassa, the, the genre that, that packs out Madison Square Garden. It's not that. And that's okay. But if you look at it, there is a ton of incredible incredible blues players out there that are doing awesome things. You know, uh, you know, there's people that are of Joe Bonamassa's age, like, uh, Kirk Fletcher, Josh Smith. These are great players that are, are having accolades. And then there's a guy like John Primer, who along with buddy is probably is one of the last of the old school Mohegans. He put out an album last year and it was nominated for, um, what a, a blues award. I, I can't remember. It wasn't nominated for a Grammy. And that's the thing, you know, the blues, the blues is alive and well. And the fact that buddy guy is almost 90 years old and can still line up a 150 date farewell tour. Well, it tells you that. And there's a lot of young players, you know, too. Uh, Samantha fish, Ali Venable, it's a ton of great young blues players that, that are, that are coming uh, that are great, but I don't think we need another Stevie Ray Vaughan to do that because it's, it's still happening. The blues has residents again, it has its audience, but it's not the, it's not for the people that hand out Grammys. It's not for the people that listen to pop radio, but it's there and it's strong, far stronger than it was when Stevie Ray Vaughan came along. I always think too, and I've said this before on on the podcast, that blues is a true art form, and it's it's probably the only genre that is a direct output of emotion. And you know, you talk about pop music and how overproduced it is. Country, at times, I don't know what I'm listening to, you know, with with the country pop and all that stuff. There's still some really good stuff underneath that, like outlaw country, but in terms of just emotion, playing what you feel, there really isn't another genre, maybe jazz that, that does that too. Um, 
But when you look at the history of blues and how it's intertwined with history of our country, the civil rights movement, where it was where it began, you know, through poverty and slavery, it really is a true American art form. And I'm glad you said that, you know, blues is still resonating with people because I think a rock fan like myself who also likes blues kind of gets lost in that it should be more popular than it is. And why aren't people listening to it when it's okay if that's the case, right? I mean, I used to think rock needed to be mainstream, but it really doesn't because I think it ultimately hurts the genre because we saw what happened in the 80s towards the end when it became so popular instead of bands being signed because of how they sounded and how they played, they got signed because of how they looked. And as a rock fan, I don't want to go through that again. And I don't want to see that happen to blues too, where the, the, the powers that be in the industry get their claws in it and absolutely ruin the genre for decades to come after that. Well, you have to remember, um, we'll take grunge, for example, grunge rock, you know, that's something that started out as one thing. And by the end of the nineties, it was something totally different, but be that as it may, no matter what happens with any genre, whether it's rock music or blues or heavy metal, you know, there's always going to be those people that are still sort of carrying the flag for what it started out as. And I don't, I don't blame any band for, for going after the brass ring. I don't, you know, you know, you have to make the money. You know, there's one side of it that says you must maintain your artistic integrity. And then there's another side of it where you have to, you have to make a living. Right. And if you, if you have the chance to, to get, you know, to have it all with the knowledge that that's probably fleeting, you have to go for it. Um, I don't blame any band or artist for, for going mainstream or being what people perceive as mainstream because ultimately we don't have to listen to it. And uh, there's always going to be something else that, you know, we perceive is worth our time. So we have to remember that. Uh, but with the blues, you know, it's a funny thing because it's just, it's, I, I suppose it could be bastardized and turned into a pop version of itself, just like country music has. And that's, that's not uh to disparage anybody that likes pop country. It's cool. If you like it, by all means, you know, dig on it. But um, just because using country as an example, that there's pop country, there's still a lot of, you know, original country, outlaw country. You know, Shooter Jennings is still making some cool outlaw stuff, but there's pop stuff too. That could happen with blues. And if it does, I have to look at it this way. Um, the best thing that probably ever happened to heavy metal in the nineties is the black album, Metallica's black album. Um, and everybody says that they sold out, but how many fans does it bring to the genre? Even if you don't like that album, it, it brings awareness. So I would say the blues as we know it, and as we love it to be that sort of outlier genre, uh, that's always going to exist no matter what we do. Joe Bonamassa is massive, but there's still indie blues artists, right? Um, and it's the same. If for some reason record labels decide that they want to 
take the blues and turn it into a pop version of itself and everybody's going to complain. It's okay because there's still going to be a gazillion young blues artists that are going to be playing clubs and, and, and doing the thing. And that's cool too. So there's two sides of the coin. It, it doesn't ruin the genre because the cream rises to the top and they go for that brass ring. I, I'm okay with that. I, I'm not bothered, but I will admit that there is a certain comfortability in the in the sort of coziness of blues being the outlier genre, the, the one that you know you watch it in a smoky club and some sort of old old wrinkled person playing these soulful licks. There's a there's a romanticization of that, if you will. I also think too, for a fan. If you have to seek something and you find it, it means more to you than something that is given to you. You know, if you have to go seek out the blues and you discover all this great music, if you have to go seek out rock and roll and discover all this great music, I think as you grow and get older, that stays with you. Whereas something that's given to you that you may have enjoyed here and there as a song, that that goes away. You know, it, 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 well, it may stick around, but you have more emotional attachment to something that you sought out. And I think that puts blues and rock in a good place because you are getting you're not getting music consumers, right, that are kind of the pop music fans. You're getting music fans, people that know your songs. They know your solos. They know the deep cuts, the fourth track on the third album and all that kind of stuff that that is if I was an artist, it's easy for me to say, obviously, because I'm not, I would totally want that. I totally would want the loyalty and the dedication that you see a lot with a lot of these artists. Yeah. And it's, you know, music is personal. Uh, you know, I, I've had a lot of artists tell me that they make an album and no matter how much they put into it, uh, no matter what life event spurred it on, no matter how much blood or sweat or tears they shed while making it, once they release it, it's the world's, you know? Um, because it doesn't matter what went into a song you created. Uh, people are going to perceive it however they want, and it becomes theirs. You know, those old Elvis songs, I perceived them in a way that could be completely different than you do. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And music is very personal for that reason. And I, I think that's why people get upset when their their favorite artists or when the genre that they love becomes commercialized or becomes more slick, but it, it, I always say it's easier said than done. That if you can separate yourself from that and just take it for what it is, it's not so bad. It, it's not it's it's not bad for the genre, but music is a very personal thing. And um, to your point the discovery and, and how we come upon these things and, and where we are in life when we discover them is a big part of that. You know what I mean? It, it's, um, you know, if you're in a particularly shitty place in life and you discover a certain song and it soundtracks that, that you know, that, that part of your life and you get through it with that song, you're going to have an attachment to that song, regardless of what it's about. It could be anything. We all have that. So, um, yeah, and the, those are the reasons why we latch on to these things. To your point, it's sort of that, that journey of discovery and what goes into it. What do you think 
what do you guys' legacy is? What do you guys' legacy? The problem is I know too much <laughs> about him. Um, so how do I answer that? I mean, I, I can give you the Wikipedia version where he's an awesome guitar player uh, that influenced the blues, but I think Buddy Guy's legacy is that maybe more so than any other player, he turned the electric blues into what it is today. You know, a lot of people will reference B.B. King, um, and that's valid. That's completely valid. And uh, a lot of people will reference Howlin' Wolf, and that's valid too. Uh, you could, even, you know, there's a lot of players like that. But Buddy Guy, it's not just the sound. It's the aggression. It's his gear choices, the way that he used that gear the way that he used it in the studio, the way that he used it live, the way that he performed. Um, you know, it, it's undeniable that there's a way that he plays that is pretty singular only to him. And despite how influential, you know, Mississippi Slim and B.B. Uh, King and Helen Wolf are, I don't believe for a second that English 60s blues rock would have happened without Buddy Guy. I think if Buddy Guy had never existed, I think that would look totally different if it existed at all. You know, and you go down the rabbit hole. What does that change? Where, where does that leave Led Zeppelin? You know, where does that leave Aerosmith? And then into the 80s, where does that leave Stevie Ray Vaughan? Um, it's endless. It, it, it's far greater than people realize. He's not just a great guitar player who did some really awesome blues and is still up there at 87 years old. He, in a lot of ways, architected something that is far bigger than people realize. It, it, the roots of Buddy Guy are felt very deeply to this day. That's his legacy, I think more than anything else. He doesn't have to be the best blues guitar player ever. Uh, he doesn't have to have the most well-known songs, but the sound and how he created it is, and what it caused the after effect that ripple, that's his legacy. And it's still there to this day. That's beautifully said to follow up on that. You talked about the way he used the gear, the way he played for those that are not familiar or those that maybe lack the ear, what is the most unique thing about Buddy's playing? You know, the aggression. Um, you have to remember when Buddy Guy came around, um, as I said before, you know, when he came around in the mid-late 50s, most blues players were using semi-hollow guitars a lot of guilds, things like that. Um, even to the day he died, what, what did B.B. King play? Semi-hollow guitar. Um, but, you know, those guitars are great, and they're, they're quintessential as far as blues is concerned. Um, but there's an aggression that you can get out of a Stratocaster. It's different. Um, it's a more versatile guitar. 
in general, in my opinion. And it's also a more rock-leaning guitar, uh, which goes hand-in-hand hand with Buddy Guy because he wasn't playing blues the way that B.B. King. He wasn't, he wasn't so nuanced in his playing. You know, there's an attack. There's a fire. There's a way that he picks. There's a way that he frets. There's a way that he approaches his chords and the progressions. It's, it's aggressive. It's raw. And he, he attacks the guitar. And when you pair that up with a Fender Bassman, the Tweed Amp, it's a sound that became renowned. I mean, how many players have plugged a Fender Strat into a Fender Tweed Amp and you get that sound? It's aggressive. It's, it's loud. It's, it's gainy. Uh, it's, it's overdriven. And uh, that's something that was different. And it's part of why he, they asked him to tone it down because it was different. Because, you know, people maybe weren't quite ready for that. But I don't think Buddy really cared. <laughs> I think of his, I always say whenever I talk about Buddy, that no one bends a string like Buddy Guy. Mm -hmm. And I made mention of this on previous episodes, his version of Red House that was on oh, yeah. that Stone Free tribute album that was uh, for Hendrix. And hearing that, I mean, there's always, there's, there's certain players that when you hear them play, time stops, right? Like you lose everything that you're doing. You get lost in the sound and the tone. And then when the song's over, you like snap out of it. And like you were in a trance for however long you were in it. And that has the ability. A lot of his songs have that ability. But I remember when I first heard that, I just stood and stared at the same place on the wall, just listening to it and couldn't believe it. And... You know, it's not Buddy's song, but there's plenty of stuff. There's a lot of stuff with Junior Wells that he did that's absolutely amazing. There's his solo stuff. Um, I mean, him and Junior Wells were a, a one-two punch that was incredible at the time and really not seen since then. Uh, I don't know if anyone's ever been able to match that, but Buddy has that way of taking you out of whatever you're doing and stop you in your tracks, which is – there's probably – a couple handfuls of guitar players that could do that. I always tell people, people that don't understand that what you're saying about Buddy Guy, because it's spot on and it's a hundred percent true. Uh, if you want to understand the kind of player that Buddy Guy is, pull up his uh, Stone Crazy album. First track, I Smell a Rat. He opens up the album with a nine and a half minute song called I Smell a Rat. And it's... It's everything that you were just describing. It's Buddy Guy's playing in a nutshell. It's aggressive. He's bending the strings. There's an incredible refrain, but he's attacking it. And as he's playing it, he's actually sort of like hemming and hawing and moaning into the microphone as he's doing it. He sort of, and my perception of the song is he's almost having sort of like a, a battle with himself and the guitar. And, you know, the guitar is fighting back and he's fighting back at it. Uh, you listen to that song, I Smell a Rat, and you'll catch the vibe of what Buddy Guy is. That's that's him in a nutshell. It's nine and a half minutes of pure badass blues expression at its finest. And it came out at a time when he was all but forgotten. And the passion behind that, even though he was completely buried commercially, uh, it's incredible. That, that, that just goes to show you that the kind of player he is and the kind of person that he is that he could put something out like that at a time where he was completely buried. 
Andrew, this has been great, man. Um, I've always wanted to do an episode on Buddy Guy, and I haven't found, or up until today, I didn't find the right person. And I just want to thank you for sharing your thoughts and your perspective, because he's one of my favorite musicians of all time, one of my favorite players of all time, and I could probably talk about Buddy Guy for another two hours. Oh, no problem, man. You know, uh, Buddy Guy has always been my favorite blues uh, guitar player. Um it always has been for all the reasons that we're talking about. So when I got the chance to interview him uh, for Guitar World at that point, you know, uh, it was awesome. You know, it, it's it's a great thing. Uh, I'll give you one last story. I, I became aware of Buddy Guy in the 90s, reading an, uh, uh, an issue of Guitar World. Um, I think it was the... It was for the album that came out after the one uh, in 91 that sort of sprung him back into relevance when they came after him. So the issue probably wouldn't have been from like 93 or 94. I was very young. I was probably like six years old. And um, I remember reading it and becoming aware of him. And uh, years later, when I really dug into him, I, uh, I never forgot that. And I still have the issue to this day. So I couldn't help when I was doing the interview to, to think back on that. Um, that first instance with him and sort of uh, probably be the last one to interview him for Guitar World, um, at least for the print. You know what I mean? It's, it's pretty cool. It's a, it's a privilege. And, uh, you know, to talk to you today about him, it's awesome. You know, it's uh, he deserves it. He deserves all the praise. And if you're not aware of him or who he is and you're into that kind of music, um, you have to change that. You really do. If if you're listening and you have not really dove into his catalog, do it. it it'll be uh, it'll be a great experience for you, and it may even change your whole perspective on music. I know it did for me, especially guitar playing. Um, I, there's there's no one else like him. Absolutely, I uh, I couldn't agree more. And uh, if you're looking for the jumping off point, remember I smell a rat. <laughs> Everyone, that is Andrew Daly. All his social media accounts will be in the show notes, plus the link to the Buddy Guy interview, which is a must-read. If you're a guitar fan, if you love guitar, if you play guitar, and you're not following Andrew, if you're not reading his, his interviews and articles, I suggest you do. Once again, this is Jay Scott. This has been another episode of The Hook Rocks. Take care of each other, stay safe, and we will talk soon. Thank you.
can a poor man do when the blues, when the blues keep following him around? Get him a half a pint of good liquor and sit there and drink him on down. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 